Yeah, lawyer or pastor, what's that all about, huh? I'll tell you one time he got me out of jury duty, though. Um, I was, when they came and put me in the box and said, you know, what is your profession? I said, well, I'm an attorney and I'm also a pastor. And you could hear the lawyer shuffling their papers on the table and the judge blurted out. He said, is that even allowed? But I was ready for him. I said, your honor, which one is the dishonorable profession, the law or the clergy? And sure enough, he dismissed me right away, which is, yes. So for all of you who are always asking, how do I get out of jury duty? You could try that. Uh, you can see even I'm conflicted. The lawyer said, put on a, a blazer. And the pastor said, yeah, but don't tuck in your shirt. You know, so that's the way it is. You know, we're in the third week of Advent, the third week of a series that Pastor Josh has called All is Calm and reminded us each week it's an ironic title. In the year 2020, it's anything but calm, right? But we're not alone in that. At the time that Jesus was born, it wasn't calm then, but we still sing that song, silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. And yet we see this young couple that has found out that they're going to be with child that are having a birth in less than ideal circumstances from the corner of the world that was of no importance, wedged in the oppression of the Roman Empire. There's nothing ideal or calm about this time that we study. So we've been following this through line. We've been following this phrase that keeps being repeated in the Christmas story, do not be afraid. And in the first week, Pastor Josh talked to us about Zechariah, the priest who, while in the temple doing his duty, encounters an angel that says to him, you will have a son, even though he and his wife Elizabeth were beyond childbearing years. And that son would be John the Baptist, who is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah the one who came to prepare the way. And the angel says, do not be afraid. To Mary last week, we saw the angel appear to her and say the same words, do not be afraid. Even though she's found out that she's going to have a son and not just any son, that he would be the long expected Messiah. And she hadn't even been with a man. How can this be? What is this news that you're giving me? And what do I do with this news? And the angel says, favored one, do not be afraid. Next week, we're going to look at the shepherds in the field as they get treated to the greatest sing-along, Christmas sing-along ever, although last week was really close. Last week was really good. And the angels repeating the same phrase, do not be afraid. And in today's text, you see that Joseph is told the same thing, do not be afraid. But you know, these people are not unlike us. We want to hear those words now. The Bible app, version, which a lot of us use to look for Bible verses or to read the Bible on our phones, just released the top most searched verse in 2020. And it's Isaiah 41.10. Now, I don't know that we've all memorized that, but you can guess what it says. It says, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be afraid is the most searched verse that we could find. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In 2020, that's what we're looking for, to hear those words as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we open up his word and see what he has for us today. Pray with me. Our God and Father, we ask that you open our eyes that we might see your glory, that you would open our ears past things that are familiar, but that we would hear things afresh, that you'd open our hearts, that we'd receive your love and share it freely. You'd open our hands 
so that we would give generously from all that you've given. You'd open our lips that we would praise you in response. And all these things we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You know, if you're around church for long enough, you realize that we have this habit. And if you're just checking out church or just checking out Jesus, you'll, you'll pick this up fast. We love to take very complicated, beautiful, uh, intricate parts of the scripture and reduce them to phrases that are 10 words or less. And then we put them like an embroidered pillow or a coffee mug or a meme, and then we send them to each other. And some of them are not even found in the Bible. Uh, one of them that I like the most is the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And in the text today, what we're going to see is someone who's told exactly what God wants him to do. But we have to ask ourselves, is that true? The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. You know, we love convenience as Americans. No wonder this has crept into our churches. We love convenience and comfort and safety. Whole ministries are designed around inviting people and making it fun and not asking for too much. When I turn on Christian radio, it's always safe for the whole family, right? Uh, as if hearing an edgy word is the whole goal of getting away from that. The whole goal of the Christian life is safety, right? When we realize that, is that really true? Last week, Pastor Josh told us about Corey Ten Boom, and this is actually her quote from a book that she wrote. And in this book, she describes, because of her faith, living at the time of the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands, she and her family, again, deeply convicted by their faith, began to see their Jewish neighbors rounded up to concentration camps, and they began to hide those families and move them to safety, and they saved nearly 800 Jews from the concentration camps until the secret police burst into their own home and arrested all of them and put them in the very concentration camps that they were seeking to keep others out of. In that camp, she watched her father die and her sister. And later when she wrote the book, The Hiding Place, it's there that she wrote the words, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. But you can see that her notion of safety was costly. And there was something to the obedience that she had so what I want us to see today as we look in our text is maybe it isn't just safety that we're looking for, but to rest in the assurance that in every circumstance, whether we're safe or in distress, whether we have peace or whether we're called to great cost, God is with us. And that's what we're trying to pull out. Now, I'm going to do that today by looking at this text and just pulling out a couple points. The first is I want to see how Joseph responds with a costly obedience and also with humble service. Let's look at the first point first and back to Matthew chapter one. Now, Matthew is one of Jesus' disciples and now he's writing a biography, a good news biography, a gospel to tell the life and he begins with the birth of Jesus. And he says in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the story of the birth of Jesus from Joseph's perspective. Betrothal was more than just an engagement. Betrothal was kind of like a pre-marriage. They called each other husband and wife. In fact, the only way to get out of a betrothal was either death or some sort of divorce. And here he's betrothed to Mary, but they have not yet come together because the custom was once you were betrothed together, he would go home and start to build a home so that one day in about a year's time, there would be a ceremony where he'd bring Mary to his house. 
Now, Joseph, we know from Scripture, is a carpenter. And as this carpenter, think about what he must be doing every day as he's building a house. I love home improvement, personally. It's my way of relaxing. I love painting something or, or sanding or building or doing something with my hands because my mind is just wandering all over the place. And, and this, I, maybe I'm projecting, but I love to think of Joseph working on his home this way and thinking every day, what is it going to be like to bring Mary home? And all of this dreaming and thinking and planning for the future is interrupted when he hears that Mary is pregnant. Now, he must be thinking, it's not me. I have nothing to do with this. So that must mean she's been with somebody else. And that begins to work through his mind. And her husband, Joseph, it says in the next verse, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. You know, notice it says that Joseph is a just man. What, what that means, he's, another translation might be righteous or law-following, law-abiding. He wants to do the right thing. As it's stated in the law, he wants to be righteous and right. But at the same time, notice that he wants to do it in a loving, merciful, and, and very graceful way. You see, he had a couple choices if someone was caught in adultery in the Old Testament, they were stoned. And although that was kind of waning in popularity as a way of dealing with adultery by the time of Jesus, there were still two other choices that he had. One was to publicly divorce her. And this was the safe option. You see, if he publicly divorced her, he would be announcing to the entire community, I had nothing to do with this. And no doubt his family is probably saying, this is what you should do. Make sure that everyone knows that you don't have anything to do with this so that there's no shame brought on our family. So you publicly humiliate her. In fact, the, the word there is almost to put her to public spectacle, right? Or he had another choice, which is just on the testimony of two witnesses to divorce her quietly so that she's not subjected to this same type of shame of a public humiliation. And here he's wrestling with it. And notice that that is the way that Joseph is betrayed. You know, a lot of times when we do the nativity play and everybody gets to play a part, uh, you notice all the kids want to be anything but Joseph, right? I mean, they want to be an angel or the wise men. They, they want to do something that's fun, like Mary, maybe the baby Jesus, but sheep, oxen, everything gets priority over Joseph, who's usually standing there staring off, holding a cane, like not doing much. Like we always cast Joseph, the one person who doesn't really act very well. They're just like there as if they have nothing to do with the story. But that's not true. I think we should glean something here that God in his sovereignty had chosen Mary to bear his son Jesus and he knew that she was going to be betrothed to Joseph. And in a way he's selecting this just and righteous and merciful and loving man to be the foster father for his son Jesus. And we often skip that. We think, well, he's just kind of there in the story somehow. But I think it's not at all accidental. So let's look at the next verse in verse 20. He's considering these things in his mind and he's debating. And that is when an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
So now he's actually told, no, do not be afraid, go forward. But I want you to notice that unlike the other times we've seen do not be afraid so far in our Christmas narratives, this time it's to do something specific. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Something specific is being told to him to do and not to be afraid to do it. And he must be thinking as he's debating, this is going to be hard. There is going to be shame and stigma. People are going to be whispering all over town. You think Sierra Madre is a small town with people whispering. Think about a town of 500 people and everybody knowing what's going on. He knows this. And he doesn't know what's coming, but we do. It's not only the costly obedience of taking Mary as his wife in this way, but it's to also risk his life. You know, shortly after Jesus is born, King Herod, who is king in Jerusalem, hears from the Magi that a king has been born. In his rage and jealousy and paranoia, he orders the killing of every child under a certain age in the city of Bethlehem. But right before that, Joseph is warned in a dream, take Jesus, the child, and his mother and flee into Egypt. So Joseph's got to pick up and run for his life and the life of the child and Mary. And along the way, they've got to go into a foreign land as, as seeking asylum there in some way and setting up a new life. He's not there for a few days. He's got to practice his trade. He's got to think of ways to provide for this family, to find shelter for them. And then later on, when King Herod dies, the angel says again, go back to Israel now, pick up and move your life again. You do this the same time. So he does in obedience. He's going to go back. But along the way, he's headed towards Bethlehem. And the angel says, no, don't go back to Bethlehem. Leave Judea, the southern part. King Herod's son is still alive and he might be looking for Jesus. Go back to Galilee in the north to Nazareth. And on that long journey back from Egypt through Israel to the north in Galilee, he must be thinking the whole time, I'm going back to the same place. They're going to be whispering and pointing. And all of these things will go on. And it's so important to hear these words to him, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. How would we do in those circumstances? Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, if an angel of the Lord showed up and told me in no uncertain terms to do something, I would do it. But sometimes we hide behind that, don't we? It isn't if an angel of the Lord showed up and told me to do something, I would do it. It actually turns into until an angel of the Lord shows up and tells me to do something, then I'll do it and leave the comfort of everything I have to do it, right? I mean, we tend to hide behind that and think, well, sure, he had like four dreams with angels. Like that's pretty confirmatory, but me, I haven't had that yet. So I'm waiting, right? <laughs> but we have the scriptures. We have the teachings of Jesus that tells us exactly what he wants us to do. And we don't need to wait for a dream to know what his will is. When he says, go and make disciples of all nations, when he says, teach one another what, to obey all I've commanded you, when he says, feed those who are hungry or clothe those who are naked or visit those that are incarcerated or pray or fast or give or love, all of those things are God's will for us, right? And we should not be afraid to do those things, nor should we wait to hear it from an angel in a dream. If he said to us in our time, do not be afraid to reach out to your unbelieving neighbor. 
Do not be afraid to reach into your savings to help a friend in need. Do not be afraid to tell a coworker your testimony and how it is that you came to follow Jesus. Do not be afraid to meet a classmate that comes from a different background or has a different ideology or someone that you could learn to get to know and love. Do not be afraid to invest your time in a young person. Do not be afraid to leave the comfort that you have to enter into the discomfort of someone else. Whether that means you travel over land and sea or you just travel down the 110 to the Union Rescue Mission, all of it involves doing something that might cost us a small amount or a great amount, but the point is the same. Remember, we serve a Lord who bids us to come and die, to pick up our cross, the very instrument of our execution, to follow along with him, who tells us to leave everything behind for him. And we need to remember and remind one another constantly that whatever our circumstance, costly or not, that he is with us throughout all of this journey. Well, Joseph also responds in humble service. And I want to see that in the text starting in verse 21. So here's what the angel continues. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Matthew is making clear that this fulfills Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, last week in Kids Crew, my daughter was learning about all the Old Testament prophecies that pointed towards Jesus. And this is one of them that Matthew makes sure that we know the fulfillment has come. Well, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You see some of the humility right there in that last part of the verse. Joseph, when he finally took her as his wife into his home, did not stay with her because of the respect for the law, and also because of respect of the child that she was bearing. He did not exercise his rights as a husband and let her pass the time until the child was born. That's a sign of humility. And so is naming the child Jesus. And you might say, well, the angel told him to do that, right? That's what he's supposed to do. His job is to name him Jesus. Yes, but in the Jewish custom, to name the child is to clearly say, this child is mine and I will take care of this child. Uh, Jesus might not have been a familiar family name for Joseph's family. It might have caused other people to think, you see, he's even naming the child something else. There's something going on with those two, right? So there's this act of obedience and humility in doing that. And he's doing that and saying, I will care for this child, knowing who the true father of Jesus is, a father he could never compare to, and yet he is going to take care of this son. Jesus raises Jesus. We, we, I'm sorry, Joseph raises Jesus. We know from the text that he taught him the trade of carpentry. Jesus was known that way, and it must have come from Joseph, who was also a carpenter. He raised him in his Jewish faith as well. We know that he was trained in this obedience and, and he was given that part of the law and every year they would go to the temple. So Joseph was showing him the ways of engaging his faith. No doubt he spent time learning with him the Torah. No doubt he spent time with him as he was growing to instruct him in this way. 
You know, the last time we even hear a mention of Joseph is on one of those trips to the temple. They would go during the Passover every year to Jerusalem. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they repeated that and they went down to the Passover feast. And many of you know this story after they were finished with the feast and they were going back home to Nazareth in a, in a caravan of pilgrims probably. Mary and Joseph thought that Jesus was playing with the children and walking along and they find out that he's not there. And in great distress, they race back to the city looking for Jesus and they find him in the temple astounding the teacher's with his wisdom and with his answers and with his knowledge of the scriptures. Now, of course, in that moment, probably is one of those few moments where a mother doesn't want to know that her son is gifted. She's just distressed, right? She doesn't care that everybody's amazed by him. What she says to him is, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus responds, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I would be in my father's house? I wonder how Joseph would have received that in that moment. Would he be reminded of the angel's statement? Would he be reminded that every day he spent with Jesus, he was caring for someone who belonged to our heavenly father in that way? How did he remember those stories when he built a house and Jesus now pointing to this beautiful house or maybe even imagining the father's house in the kingdom of the heavens? He did all this with humility. You know, after the angel visited Mary, she magnified the Lord in a song that is recorded in Luke chapter one. And Zechariah, after he was visited by an angel, he sang a song of praise and it's also recorded in Luke chapter one. That must be one of the coolest things to write a song and have it be recorded in scripture right there, the lyrics of your song. Uh, Joseph doesn't have a song like that. Uh, but I hear the next best thing in the order of having your verses in scripture, the next best thing is to have John Stuthers sing a song about you. <laughs> in those moments, I hear the heavens are quieted, the angels listen to see if they can get some voice tips, you know, like, how does he do this? Um, and if you were here at the Christmas sing-along, you heard John singing the song, It Wasn't His Child, about Joseph. These were some of the lyrics Yet still he took him as his own, and as he watched him grow, it brought him joy. But it wasn't his child. It wasn't his child. It was God's child. Well, we could stop there for a moment, and then we would know a lot about Joseph and maybe use an example of how to follow in costly obedience and humble service. But let's remember that Advent is about the birth of Christ. And really what we need to focus on in this story now that we can pivot back is to see what Matthew is trying to point out in this story about the birth of Jesus. And we might miss it in the verses because he puts them together. So I'm going to take us back a step to verse 21. He says, the angel's recitation here, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins and this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. The virgin shall conceive and they shall call his name Emmanuel. You know, around Christmas time, we hear these words that we don't really hear the other 11 months of the year. You know, like Prince of Peace, Mighty God, uh, you know, Everlasting Father, Son of the Most High. Emmanuel's one of them that we only get to hear during the Christmas season. We don't really use it very much. So we might miss why Matthew is arranging his text this way. And it's very important. 
He says they'll call his name Jesus because the prophet said they'll call him Emmanuel. Does that strike anybody as strange? I mean, it'd be, I could translate in plain English like this. Uh, you're going to call the child Fred because the prophet said his name would be Jimmy, right? <laughs> if you're trying to prove that this is Jesus, the Messiah, who's been foretold, like why would you put these two things together? Jesus is Yeshua in Hebrew, Yahweh saves. And Emmanuel is God is with us. So who got it wrong? And the answer is, Matthew is doing this intentionally to remind us of something that has gone through all of the scriptures, which is that God chose to save his people by first being with them. And that is the truth that we see in the Advent story. And, and I can just barely scratch the surface of this because it is just so profound what God has done, that he has chosen to be with us, to come down to our level, to come near to us, almost the way you would drop down to your knees to look at a child at eye level, but more than that. One, one example that's commonly used is an author who longs to interact with the characters in their play. And the only way they can do that is to write in the author into the play to interact with the characters. That's what God has done as the author is entered into his creation in an entirely new and unexpected way. Jesus, divine from all time as the second person of the Trinity, takes on a human nature in this virgin birth that we're talking about today. And in that way, takes on a whole new way of showing us humanity. He experiences human birth. He experiences growth and development and learning. The scripture tells us he learns obedience to his parents. He has loving relationships. He faces ordinary temptations and difficult trials. He has the joys of friendships and even the betrayal of friends. He knows the loss of loved ones. He knows the slander of enemies. He knows what it's like to be unjustly accused. He's experienced all of these things, even death. And yet he did so perfectly without sin to show us by example how we were meant to live. But it's not just that. I mean, it'd be enough to say that he did all those things, but that's not the whole point to just come and say, see, you could have done it. That's not the point. But yet he does that. And then he goes further. In the book of Hebrews chapter 4, it says, we don't have a high priest, meaning Jesus, who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, he, in every respect, he's been tempted as we are and yet without sin. So you can see in this verse that what that means is they're connected together, that God saves by first being with us. Jesus, Emmanuel. And he did this not just to even stop with sympathizing for us, but so that he could go all the way for us. St. Athanasius said he became what we are so that we, he might make us what he is. He's taking us even further. He's doing for us what we could not do. He's going to pay the penalty of sin so that we might receive the inheritance that's due to him. All of these things are amazing. Now, we don't know how much Joseph could have understood of all of this. You know, even the disciples later struggled to understand all the things that Jesus was teaching. And maybe it wasn't until after the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit on the church that they finally started to put it all together in a way that they could articulate. 
But it is nice to think about that everywhere that Joseph went in whatever situation, whether in comfort, in joy, in distress, in sacrifice, that Jesus was with him all the time. The truth is, he's with us as well. The truth is, in every circumstance, those of us who follow him, he's with us. And we have a great advantage in this that we often overlook. We have the Gospels that tell us about the life, the teachings of Jesus. We know of his death. We know of the power of his resurrection. We have the writings of the New Testament that give us God's inspired word of who Jesus is. We have the Holy Spirit that indwells us and is a community in the church, is present in the world. And we have 2,000 years of theological reflection on what all this means. And so when we say that God is with us, there is a profound truth here that we get to glean. You know, Matthew begins his gospel, his biography, with this great statement, God is with us. Emmanuel, he's citing back to the prophecy to make sure that we understand. And he also ends his gospel with that as the last word. As Jesus is returning to heaven after his resurrection, as he is ascending, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, Emmanuel, to the end of the age. And if we want to say, well, Lord, what do you want me to do? I would say this would be a good place to start. Jesus, Emmanuel. So he's with us and he's for us. He's done what we could not do so we could gain what was due to him. The father will adopt us. We see in Joseph this beautiful picture of someone who adopted Jesus. Throughout the centuries, Christians have always been on the forefront of adoption care and orphan care. And why not? We have this great example where our heavenly father says, I am adopting you when you come through my son to me. And he does that for us. What I'd like to do here at the end is to pray over us the way that he is for us. Romans 5, 8 says, For God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in Romans chapter 8, I want you to receive this tonight as our closing prayer, to hear the ways in which we respond. And if you're somebody who's just learning about Jesus, what I would pray is that you would hear this and say, yes, I want God for me in the same way. And then come and get to know Jesus because this is being offered to all who come through him. This is from Romans chapter 8. The response. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised and he's at the right hand of God who is indeed interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And you can add in your own words from 2020 in here. Shall pandemic or divisiveness or job loss or loneliness or cultural change or political strife? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, seal these words to be on our minds and in our hearts and to be ever on our lips. We pray this in your name. Amen.